Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. Wherever and whenever this finds you, I hope you're doing well. Uh, tonight we're talking about uh, I like big books. This is our um, sort of warm up for a trip to the Bible Museum where we will, uh, I will, okay, I'm going to go do my museum nerd thing. I'm going to look at all the exhibits. I'm going to soak in some of the history and some of the great things that are there at the Bible Museum. Um, but one of the things we're trying to do in this podcast is give some background information so that when you walk into something like the Bible Museum, which is very well done, you don't need any warm-ups. They have a lot of good stuff there to help kind of get you into the museum groove. But this is for us to kind of get even more background information, have a little bit more of an understanding even as we get ready to go. So this is also for you. If you don't happen to make this trip to the Bible Museum, that's that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna enjoy thinking about getting to the English Bible together. So the the development of the English Bible, sort of right off the bat, is fascinating. It is a fascinating story to think about how we got from the ancient word delivered through Jesus to the apostles, written down by dedicated men of God, people who gave their lives for what they believed. And then those letters and those books were preserved and sort of kept going through the centuries of hand copying all these different things to get to the Bible that we have almost as a convenience. Just about every home has or should have a Bible. Churches are filled with Bibles. There are shelves full of Bibles. You can go and find one in any hotel room. Well, maybe almost any hotel room. The world is changing. But when we think about this book, it has an incredible history in and of itself. And so as we get started, let me just, I'm going to pull up a couple of diagrams and give you a couple of ideas to think through and talk through. If you're if you're only doing this by audio, that's fine. You'll you'll be able to keep up. But there is a video option on the YouTube. When we think about the Bible, the Bible was inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3:16 says all scripture is inspired of God and it's given for reproof and correction. The Bible is an incredible book given to us so that we can live our lives before God in a way that makes sense. And so God gave us what we need. The author is inspired. So the author is inspired of God, and he produces a text. So if you go back to the Old Testament and you think about Moses, Moses was inspired by God to write down what God wanted written down. And then when you think about you know Isaiah, Isaiah wrote down what God wanted written down. And that's true of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's true of you know, the, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. That's true of Peter. That's true of James. These men wrote down what God wanted us to have because they were inspired. And so they produced a text. That text is often called an autograph, the original. And for the New Testament, actually for the New Testament and the Old Testament, 
the the Old Testament, the canon was closed. What that means is the collection was collected. It had been decided about 400 years before the time of Christ. The community of God followers knew what books belonged in the Bible by about 400 years before Christ came. The New Testament was written before 100 AD, what we call the first century. Now, if you happen to be somebody who is scholarly, you'll, rem you'll say, but wait a minute, some scholars disagree. I get that. But here on the unqualified scholar, I'm going to say it was written before 100 AD. And there's good reasons to believe that. And you can, um, I don't know if you have complaints and you've gotten this far, you can send me an email. Off the bat, these documents were copied. So when Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans, somebody said, oh, that's, that's theology, that's good stuff, I've got to make a copy of it. And so the text was copied, the Gospels were copied. You know, when Matthew and Mark and Luke wrote their Gospel, they wrote it to be spread out geographically as far and wide as it could possibly go. And so these books were copied. Now the, the copying process and the writing process was very expensive. You would have to have a prepared animal skin of several different kinds in order to make a formal rolled up scroll kind of a copy. People made copies of fragments and pieces on broken bits of pottery because they wanted to remember, and they had fantastically trained memories. They wanted to remember what God had delivered to us. They wanted to know what God had said. And so these copies were then copied. So you have a copy that from which there's made a copy. So you have the original that's made a copy, and then there's a copy, and then there's a copy. And remember, these guys aren't using Xerox machines. They're hand copying. And some of the copyists are going to be very scrupulous and pay attention to every letter and every detail. Other people will be, you know, listening to someone read the letter and writing down as best they can what they heard. So there are errors in the copies. Christians believe that there are no errors in the originals, but there are errors in the copies. And by comparing copy to copy, you can find and you can see what things are believed to be mistakes, and they can either be corrected or left in, depending on how you're how you're bent. So we have copies and copies and copies and copies and copies. Now, not only do we have copies, but we also have quotes. So as the early church fathers, we move past that 100 AD to the time of the early church fathers. And what they do is they're taking the teaching of the apostles and they're passing it on. And so while they do that, they will quote the Bible in their written sermons and documents and they're writing letters back and forth and they're writing sermons and they're doing all kinds of things now we have some of the some of these written documents where pieces of scripture are quoted and that's fantastic because now you can look at the quote compare it to the copies and see what information might be missing you can try to get closer to the original now not only do we have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies and places where scripture is quoted and quoted and quoted, quoted and then copied? We also have translations. Now, the translations 
Uh, some of the early translations are things like Syriac. Uh, so there's a Syriac translation of which we have copies. There's also a Sahidic translation. There's Boharic. Um, and so all of these things are, you know, Scripture basically at its inception, the Bible, the New Testament, it went viral. And so you could pretty much throw a rock and you could hit somebody who had heard something from the Bible and was able to tell you about it. You had people talking about the incredible events in this little town of Jerusalem, in this backwater of the Roman Empire. And people were talking about it. And they were making these copies and the church was expanding. And as the church expanded, there was a need to understand what the Bible is. Which things in scripture are scripture or which things in literature at the time are scripture? Because you also, at the same time, you have all the Bible stuff going on. You have other literature, just like we have um, any number of different books about the Bible. You would have people producing early documents that Christians found helpful. There's a writing called the Shepherd of Hermas that did not make it into the Bible. It was not inspired by God. This other literature was not inspired, but yet Christians found it helpful to live their Christian life. And so these things kept, you know, there were copies and copies and copies of these things that Christians found helpful. There's something called the Didache, the teaching. So it kind of summarizes and applies the Bible and, and people felt like it was good. And so they were like, I need a copy of that. And so they would make copies however they could. And so you have all these things. Some of them are scripture. Some of them are the word of God. And other pieces of literature are not the word of God, even though Christians might find them helpful. Okay, so Pastor Todd, you're killing me. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is that if someone comes to you and says, we found a new book of the Bible. Well, no, you didn't. Because God inspired his word, the text was produced, the early Christian community preserved it very carefully, it was passed down through the centuries, and so if you found something, you found something that was other than Christian literature. I'm pretty confident of that. And so you have all of these things happening in the first couple centuries. All of this is going on at the same time. But what happens is, as time goes on, you see, Christianity started as an illegal religion. It operated under the framework of the Jewish faith for a long time. And so people thought that Christians were just different kinds of Jews, Jews with a subset of Jewish ideas. As time moved on, the Jewish people said, no, 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 they're not us. And so make a distinction here. We're different than them. And I'm sure some Christians said the same thing. No, 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 we're, we're like Jews. We, we, you know, we come from the Jews, but we follow Jesus Christ. And so you have all these things happening in the world and a couple things that are important. So in 313 AD, Christianity became a legal religion. So for the first couple hundred years, it was illegal. People could be persecuted simply for being Christians. Many Christians were killed for their faith. 313, Emperor Constantine says, no, 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 you guys are now a legal religion, separate from Judaism, you're on your own, and you're allowed to be practiced in the Roman Empire. More than that, Christianity suddenly became popular. And so all of a sudden you had people kind of coming to church, coming into the church, 
some for good reasons and some because it was the cool thing to do. So then there were a couple of church councils. Now, something that is often believed is that the church councils came up with the Bible. That's not true. God came up with the Bible. God inspired the author to produce the text, and the community took a good hard look at what the author produced, and they decided that there were certain things that were scripture, that were the Bible, that were the Word of God, and other things were maybe valuable but were not the Word of God. The, the Christian community has always been very, very discerning and very quick to not accept something into the Bible. So Christianity was made legal, and then you have church councils. Now, most of the church councils are trying to solve problems of heresy, not necessarily deciding what's which texts are biblical and which texts aren't. They did that along the way because... As you confront heresy, you'll have someone come in and say, well, I've got this book over here, the book of, you know, Edward Smith or whatever, and it says this. And Christians would reply, yeah, but that's that's not the Bible. That's not the book that we follow. That's not the Word of God. And so you needed to have what's called a canon list to decide which books should be kept, which books were authoritative, and which books were not. And so it wasn't that the councils got together and made up what was scripture. They looked at what the community had already been dealing with, had already accepted, and they said, yes, this is scripture, this is not scripture. In the early couple hundred years when Christianity was illegal, one of the things that they wanted these canon lists for is which of these very expensive books should I hold on to even at the cost of my life and which books could I part with and let the Roman authorities believe they were burning up something special? Oh yeah, sure. Take this one. Don't take the Bible, right? So the, the councils didn't start these things. The councils affirmed what Christians had been believing and doing for a long time. Now, one of the things, and I, I, I tell you this to get to, to, get to here, uh, in 382, what the church needed, what the church found is that they had lots of different texts, but they didn't have everything kind of collated into one established, this, this book. Uh, even the idea of having a book, you know, you have, to, you have to have the technology to make a book before you have a book. And so the church in the Roman Empire dealt with the Latin language. And so what they wanted was the Bible in Latin for the church. And so they approached a scholar by the name of Jerome, and he produced what's called the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate or Vulgate, um, it doesn't really matter to me how you say it. The, the Latin translation was important for the church. Because what Jerome did is he, he looked at all of the different texts that were available in his time and he put them together into one Latin translation. There are older Latin translations than Jerome's work. He's just the guy who sort of put it all together and gave the church an established Bible. Now, when Jerome did this, he said in some of his prefatory notes, there are as many translations as there are manuscripts. 
So he knew of a lot of different handwritten copies at the time that he made one translation. He had to make a decision, which says what and how. And he made good decisions. The Latin Vulgate uh, was around for a long time, still around, really. And so what I want you to take away from this is that there was a single text produced by Jerome, but it wasn't because the councils decided this is the Bible. The councils affirmed what the community had already been using as scriptures. And so that's where we get back to liking big books and how do we even get to the English Bible. So we're at the Latin Bible at this point. And the Jerome has taken all of these viral texts and he has produced a Latin Bible that ultimately we're going to end up at the King James after we finish all this. So one of the things we can also look at, this is, well, okay, if you're, if you're watching, you'll see an image of what's called Codex Sinaiticus. Now, Sinaiticus is an old Greek translation, uh, or is an old Greek manuscript. Sorry, it's not a translation. It's an old Greek manuscript that goes back way, way back. And so this was produced in the 4th century. So this is in the 300s that this was produced. It's amazing that we, that we have this. The church used uh, these texts, many of these texts, to create the Latin Bible. And so the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, um, when you when you see this the text, when you see what this what it takes to put this into a bound volume, you have to remember that we're writing at this time. We don't have thin sheets of paper. We have thick sheets of animal skin called parchment or vellum that has been scraped thin and prepared to be bound into a volume, and the volume can be gigantic. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see this is Codex Emanatus. It is gigantic. So the church has a Latin Bible, but as time goes by, we get into, you know, we get through all the different things that happen. The Roman Empire falls in the late 400s. We have the rise of Islam in the 600s. We have the Crusades in the thousands trying to take back the Holy Land. And we also have the, we get to the time of you know, the 1300s. And in the 1300s, we have this guy named John Wycliffe. Now, Wycliffe is English. And he deserves like his own, like all of these different stories, everything that I tell you about, it's almost like these things could be their own entire story. There are books written about all this stuff. So when Wycliffe sat down to make a translation of the Bible into English, what he used was the Latin Vulgate. At the time, and, it, and the Vulgate had been revised since the time of Jerome, this is a thousand years later, we're in the 1300s, and several technological and, um, I mean, philosophical ideas have sort of come into play by the time that John Wycliffe big, translates the Bible. One of the problems politically is that there's trouble in the church. Now, everybody at this point is Catholic. Okay, so there's the Roman Catholic Church, and inside the Roman Catholic Church of the 1300s, 
there is a little bit of a problem. So it's called the Schism of 1378. Um, there was a series of popes who were French. And these French popes wanted to be kind of um, close to, relationally and geographically, they wanted to be close to the French king. There wasn't an idea of the separation of church and state. All of this kind of works together. So this church and the state work together to promote healthy society, good morals, all those kinds of things. So as the church is doing this, there's a series of French popes, and they governed from France. So they weren't in Rome. They were over in France and snuggling up with the French king. Well, you can imagine how this makes the Italians feel when they've got this perfectly good place in, in Rome. Why aren't they there? So Gregory XI decides he's going to move back to Rome. So he's French, but he moves back to Rome. He establishes that there's the, the seat of the Roman church is in Rome. He goes back. Well, then he dies. And so there's this guy that the, the cardinals get together. And the, as the cardinals get together, they decide on to pick a new pope. And they pick this guy, Urban VI. Now, Urban was from Naples. He was from southern Italy. And he kind of ruled with a heavy hand. And so he came in kind of heavy-handed, and the French cardinals didn't like that. So they went back to France, where they had a, a papal palace. They had the administrative people that were already there. The French cardinals go back to France. They make a declaration that the papal throne is vacant, and they elect a new pope. Now, Urban VI is still in Rome, when they elect Clement VII in France. And so now you have this situation where there are two popes. Now, it got worse before it got better because there ended up being a period of time when there were three popes because the civil governments came in and they said, we can't have two different popes. How can we work together with two different popes? It's creating division in the church. So they deposed or they you know, decided, we're not gonna follow either one of these guys. We're gonna follow this other guy, this third guy. So then for a while, there are three different popes. Well, if you believe that authority comes from God to the head of the church, to the secular ruler, how, do you, how does that work when there are three different popes? So one of the ideas that is happening as people look at the situation, they're like, this is a mess. Where does authority come from? Now let me give you an example of the 1500s. So this is a page from, oh gosh, don't mess it up. This is the Great Bible, I think. <clears throat> and in this Great Bible, you see the king seated on his throne, and he is handing on one side to the priesthood, and on one, the other side to the layperson, he is handing them the word of God. And so where does authority come from? From the English Bible perspective, at least for, this is one perspective, and this is from the 1500s, this is later than John Wycliffe, that the Bible is given to the king, the king gives it to the people. In the, in the center section of this page from, from the Bible, 
you see that it's being handed from the from the bishops to the priests and pastors and from the secular rulers to other people and then in the bottom at the bottom of this page where the you see the descent from god above to the king to the church and to the lay people at the bottom of this page what they end up doing is they're all all of the people are saying vivat rex which is latin for long live the king and so the king is very interested in having his authority recognized by the people as coming from God. So the king says, hey, look, I've given you this Bible in English. Aren't I great? I mean, marketing is still marketing, right? And so the king is saying that his authority comes from God. He, he gives, he distributes the Bible to the people. And often, okay, so in the 1500s, we see that picture clearly descending so that everyone can say, long live the king. There's a little bit of self, there's a lot of self-interest in there for the king. And so as the king is doing all of this, he's not alone because John Wycliffe lived at the time of the Great Schism. And so Wycliffe had this keen mind. He was an intellectual and he says, okay, how does authority come from God to these different institutions? Does it come from God to the church? Well, the church is a mess. There are three different popes. Does it come from God to the king? Well, kings were known for their abuse of power and for their shenanigans, if you will. How does authority come from God? Through the church or through government? This is a historical fight that continues to this day. How does the secular government have authority? How does all this work? In the 1300s in, uh, in England, so we go back to the 1300s, John Wycliffe had opinions. He had hard opinions. He realized that many of the church's practices don't come from Scripture. And that's, that's a perpetual problem. When we as a church, when, when pastors proclaim this is what the Bible says, they're saying this is what God requires of us. And there is authority there. It's not authority in, in pastors as people. It's the authority from the Word of God as we pick up the Scriptures and say, this is what God says. Well, what Wycliffe realized is that if he wanted people to understand what God says, they had to be able to read the Bible in their language. Because people had been locked out of the Bible by Latin. People didn't speak and read Latin, not the, not the lay people, the guys who were working the fields, the guys who were running the mills and doing all this other stuff. They didn't have Latin that was reserved for the scholars and for the churchmen. And so the churchmen could say, well, the Bible says this, and you couldn't disagree because you couldn't read the Bible for yourself. And so one of the things that John Wycliffe did is he started a translation of the Bible. This is the 1300s. Can you imagine? Well, what he did is he took the Latin Vulgate and he quick kind of quick translated it into English. And he would send, these are manuscript copies, handwritten copies. He would send these people out to preach. And all they really had was like a page of scripture. They didn't have, you know, complete Bibles most of the time. They'd have like a, a little bit and they would go out and they would preach. And they were very popular because they were telling people, sometimes for the first time, not what the church said what the Bible said, what God said. 
And that is an incredibly powerful idea for people to see and realize for themselves what God says. And so these people who were sent out to preach are called lollards, which is mumblers. And yet they were so popular that they, you know, travelers at the time said every other person they met was one of these poor preachers willing to preach the gospel for almost nothing. Where does authority come from? It comes from Scripture. This challenges the established hierarchies. This challenges the church. Because now you have to make sure you're doing what the Bible says. Challenges secular authorities. Because now you have to be willing to be constrained by what the Bible says. John Wycliffe sort of kicked things off. He avoided bad consequences during his lifetime. He died in 1384. However, the church, the church was still kind of mad at him because he kicked off or he fueled this rebellion. And so in 1415, he was declared a heretic. He's been dead for 30 years. He's been declared a heretic. He, his teaching was banned. His followers were banned. His writings were burned. They were actually so mad that in 1428, the church dug up his bones, burned them, and scattered his ashes into the River Swift. Can you imagine having somebody be so mad at you that they dig up your bones in order to burn you? But what Wycliffe had started was really the result of many different cultural forces that couldn't be stopped. And along with this, there are these increases and improvements in technology. In the 1300s, the printing press really like invented is probably the wrong word. The printing press was used or something was reconfigured to print ideas and to share ideas. And one of the biggest ideas was scripture, was the Bible, so that people could decide for themselves what God said. And so we have affordable paper. Another thing that happened in, uh, in the 1300s or so is that paper had come into the European region. Started over in China. China had paper long before us, came through the Islamic countries, and early paper was actually better than the paper that we have. It was made from rags. So you'd have fabric like linen and cotton, which was then uh, sort of made into a mash and formed into sheets. And these sheets had fibers that were cloth. So actual cloth fibers. Our paper is made out of wood degrades relatively quickly. Their paper was made out of linen and, and cloth, and it, it stood the test of time. And so we get to the 1300s, we have the printing press, we have affordable paper. We're no longer forced to use vellum and parchment, prepared animal skins, and so your printing costs go way, way down. At the same time that these cultural forces that people are hungry to know what God says for themselves. So Bibles became cheap, uh, cheaper, cheaper. And so in all of this, you have, um, in all of this, you have the, the confluence of people's needs and the technology of the time. And so you get to the 1400s and 1455, you'll see the Gutenberg Bible, which was printed partially on prepared animal skins and partially on paper cotton rag paper. 
in the 1500s you have the Protestant Reformation that kicks off you have translation but translations by Tyndale and Coverdale and what's really interesting in these um, in these forewords in these translations is that you'll see in Coverdale's Bible from 1535 the king hands copies of the Bible to the priests and so what it's communicating is authority comes from God it is given to the king the king gives the authority to the priests you can imagine that the church the Catholic Church anyway isn't very excited about that and so in 1537 you have the first authorized translation it's not the King James not yet it's authorized uh, I think it's the Geneva Bible thinking correctly reading glasses Yeah, this is Coverdale's Bible. He knew very little Hebrew, so translated the Latin text of the Vulgate. Okay, so Coverdale is using the Vulgate to translate the authorized English translation. In 1539, you have the Great Bible. So in Coverdale's Bible, the king gives the Bible to the priests, and then the priests give it to the people. But in the Great Bible, 1539, you see the king giving it to priests and laypersons. So that people are given, for the first time, they're given the opportunity to read the Bible for themselves. This is a quote from the Bible. Uh, it's a book about the Bible. It's the story of the King James Version. It says this, Whereas on the Coverdale Bible, a small Henry VIII distributed Bibles to the clergy. In the Great Bible, a large Henry VIII distributes Bibles to clergy and laity alike. And so you have this king doing good things for his people but he doesn't really realize that this is going to create problems for him down the road because if authority comes from God then even secular authority is going to have to be answerable it's going to have to be held accountable to what the Bible says and so the Reformation the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s had been accompanied by a revolution one in which a book that had been imprisoned in Latin had become accessible in the everyday language of the English people. And so even before we get to the King James Version of 1611, we have these men, we have John Wycliffe in the 1300s working to produce a Bible, and, and all of these men, like, they suffered. They didn't get rich off printing the Bible. They suffered because they were trying to get the Bible into the hands of English-speaking people so that English-speaking people could decide for themselves what God said. 1537 was the first first authorized. In 1539, we have the Great Bible. Now, everything was going along really well because the English people had started to sort of separate from the Roman Catholic Church. And that was fine um, as long as those things were moving that direction. There were some hiccups along the way. So in order to explain some of the hiccups, let's take a step kind of, let's take another step back. So when we think about the history that's going on here, we remember Henry VIII. And we remember that Henry was a fine fellow as long as you weren't married to him because his basic problem is that he needs a male heir to the throne. 
His first wife, Catherine, was unable to produce that male heir. And so he's married under the Catholic paradigm, and he had to get an exception to marry Catherine. But things aren't going so well. So he needs a male heir, a legitimate male heir. And so he needs, he decides that he needs a new wife. Now, a couple of things that are not quite yet ideas. The idea of separation of church and state, still not an idea. Uh, church and state work together to force morality on people, to hold people accountable. Conflict comes when people start reading the Bible for themselves and seeing the difference between what Scripture says and what the church says. Along the way, you have a number of different kings who are against different popes. And this is what happens with King Henry. His problem is he needs a legitimate male heir to the throne, but, but his first wife, Catherine, has only produced a daughter, Mary. And so he convenes an English church court that invalidated his marriage to Catherine. Okay, so what happens is Henry needs to, to set Catherine aside so that he can marry another woman, and then this woman will be able to produce for him a male heir. But the Catholic Church in Rome isn't going to do it for him. He finds an English group of clergy who will do it for him. They invalidated his marriage to Catherine, um, and he marries Anne Boleyn. Now, Anne is a wonderful person, I'm sure. Her biggest flaw is that she married uh, this guy, and then she has a daughter. Well, Elizabeth. So, King Henry, he's got this problem. He doesn't have a male heir to the throne. He doesn't want a female taking over, heaven forbid. And he marries this woman, Anne. Actually, he married Anne before the church court allowed the separation from Catherine. So, he's got some sketchy marriage practices going on. So, the Pope, all the way over in Italy, excommunicates Henry. Now, this is a big deal. Because if you cannot receive communion from the church, if you cannot receive the sacraments of the church at the time and in that model of church, then you don't get to go to heaven, you go to the other place. Well, Henry apparently doesn't care what the church courts in Italy say because he's got his own thing going on. So in uh, 1534... There is the Act of Supremacy, which, if I can find my quote, oh, there it is, church history. In the Act of Supremacy, what it declares is that it's okay for the king to be separate from the Catholic Church. In 1534, the Act of Supremacy declared, The king's majesty justly and rightly is and ought to be and shall be reputed the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England called Anglicana Ecclesia. Do you see what happened here? They basically established the Anglican Church, the Church of England, as a separate entity from the Roman Catholic Church. Well, you can imagine, like... It's the same problem. We had the Great Schism of 1378, where we ended up with three different popes. Now we have two different separate churches, and there isn't a model of this at the time. And so it created all of this conflict and even war. And so you had people who, if, if, you, were, if you were Catholic, 
and you're walking around England, you could be persecuted for being Catholic. And if you were walking around France as an Anglican, you could be persecuted for not following the teachings of the church. Huge problem in the, in the church history. And so in 1555, now we're going we're gonna to jump to 1555 and then jump back. In 1555, they came up with a solution that you, as a, as a person, like just a regular person, you would follow the religion of your monarch. So if your king was Catholic, you were Catholic. If your king was Anglican, you were Anglican. The problem comes when your ruler switches and they're a different brand of Christian than you are. So the Anglican Church. So we're taking a step back to the, the reign of Henry VIII. The Anglican Church, um, you know, has been established. And then Henry dies. He does not have a male heir. And Mary, his daughter with Catherine, takes over the kingdom. Except she's Catholic. And so now you have this woman who is, like, go back to our little chain. God gives the monarch the power to distribute the Bible to the church. Now she's Catholic. Now, we haven't had this, this uh, edict that says you're supposed to follow the... Um, the religion of your monarch. So Mary sets out to persecute the church, to purify the church. From her perspective, she's bringing things back to the way that they should be because she's a fervent Catholic. This is why she's called Bloody Mary. You see, Bloody Mary, in trying to bring the church back, she ends up persecuting people for their religious convictions. Because the convictions of the Anglican people, like these people had deeply held convictions. They weren't just going along with the king. They believed, they truly believed from scripture that they were supposed to be different. And so Mary persecutes them and kills about 300 Protestant church leaders. When her sister, the son of uh, Henry and Anne, Elizabeth, becomes heir, becomes the king, she tried to do something called the, the Via Media. So let's find a middle way. Rather than having all of this chaos and all of this problems, let's have a middle way. And in, she produced 39 articles, 39 um, dictates of what the church was supposed to be. And in those 39 articles, Article 6 sort of establishes from the throne itself that the Bible is a source of authority. And so when we, when we see that, this is a big change. That people should not be compelled to believe or do things that are not commanded in Scripture. Where does religious authority lie? Authority lies in the text of Scripture. Even the Queen says so. And so this is very interesting. The point of all this, the point of all this historical discussion in, in the context of like this intense fight and struggle for understanding how we are to follow God. Is it through secular authority? Is it through the authority of the church? No, it's through the authority of scripture. It's from the Bible. We take that for granted. And yet in the history of, of our church, in the history of the faith, we have struggled with this as an idea. Okay, so, all right, so we have an English Bible. 
we have this question out there and one of the things that that people really so when mary took over as queen a lot of people fled to the continent they fled over from england which is an island they went to places like germany and switzerland and they were able to hang out with christians there and and they were able to produce the geneva bible this was produced by Protestants in exile, and some of the notes in the Geneva Bible were kind of anti-monarchy. So they were kind of opposed to kings and all that stuff, because there's this idea kind of percolating throughout the culture that our, our authority comes from Scripture. That's what we're supposed to be following. And so as people are realizing this, as people are, are understanding this idea, Elizabeth takes back over. And so people begin sort of filtering back over, but they've got this new understanding of the faith. They want a pure religion. And in the Bible, what they find is that the people, that there's this idea of the priesthood of all believers, that we as Christians have a responsibility to know for ourselves what Scripture teaches and we hold each other accountable to Scripture. And this is true whether you're the king or the queen or the pope or the bishop or whoever you are. We are all held accountable to what Scripture says. That's a big idea. But it's a politically dangerous idea. So, we get to this point where James, who is Mary's son, uh, not Catholic. He is an Anglican. I think he's an Anglican. But he liked theological debate. So it, the Puritans, people who have lived over on the European continent, they come back to England and they want some changes. Because the Anglican Church has a lot of holdovers from Catholicism. Uh, what What is the pastor supposed to wear when he preaches? Does he wear regular clothes like everybody else? Or does he wear vestments as the symbol of his authority? Uh, can the pastor be married or must he be unmarried? Should the pastor be educated or can he be uneducated? Where is authority? And so what they wanted to do is they said, Hey, King James, we'd like to sit down and we'd like to have a conference about this. Well, James, who likes theological debate, he's like, sure, we'll have a conference. And pretty much the Puritans don't get anything that they want except one thing, a new translation of the Bible. Now, James thinks this is a good idea because, remember, there are marginal notes in the Geneva Bible that are opposed to the monarchy. And the Geneva Bible is very popular. And so a new Bible without those marginal notes, might help James exert his authority, even if it doesn't say so much from Scripture. People might miss it. And so the Puritans don't win any of their desires, but they do, they do get a new translation authorized by the king. Now, we've gotten to the King James Bible. And the King James Bible is unique for a number of different reasons. It's unique and special. It's, it's really quite an achievement. You have to remember that these people didn't have any computers at the time. 
they had to know things. They had to remember things. They had to have books, very expensive books, in order to make sure they were making good translations. So they sat down and they worked in teams. This was unique in history. A lot of times up until now, you had individuals, people who sat down with all of their individual limitations. They sat down to make a translation. John Wycliffe, he did have some collaborators, you know, the guys that we don't talk about. He had some collaborators, but a lot of times Jerome, you know, he had his people who helped him out. But this was the first time that the Bible translation was run in a systematic way using committees and cross-checks. Now, some of the people in the Church of England didn't want a whole fresh look at the Greek text. The Latin Vulgate had a few things that weren't really accurate. And so by going back to the Greek, they might make a more accurate translation and create some political drama. So the, the bishops came up with some rules. Here are some of the rules about the translations that the bishops came up with. The ordinary Bible, read in the church, commonly called the bishop's Bible, to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the, the original will permit. Okay, so they're looking at the Latin Vulgate, they're looking at Greek translations, they're looking at what's called the received text, what the best text that they have at the time. And what they t are telling the translation committees is follow the Bishop's Bible. I think the Bishop, uh, anyway. The Bishop's Bible came after the Geneva Bible and it became very, very popular. And so what the, what the Bishop of the church wanted was basically the Bible that he liked to be the foundation of the new King James translation. Another one of the rules that, that he uh, gave to the committees, the division of the chapters to be altered, either not at all or as little as may be, if necessary, so required. So the chapter and verse divisions, which are from the 1500s, the chapter and verse divisions are not original to the text. They were created in the 1500s, and he says, yeah, let's keep those. And you know, if you want to have a new Bible reading experience, I would suggest that you get what's called a reader's edition of the Bible. It takes all of the verse divisions and chapter divisions out. And so it gives you a more natural flow without the interruptions. So rule number one, follow the Bishop's Bible. Rule number two, don't change any of the chapters. And the, well, okay, that's actually rule number five. There's like 15 different rules. <clears throat> These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible. Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, and Geneva. So there were enough English translations of the time that the bishop wanted them to not stray too far from the work of other people. And so this is fa pretty fascinating that you have teams of people working together, that you have uh, an enough English translations that they're looking at Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, they're looking at the Latin, but they're also sort of politically constrained as they create the King James Version. Now, I'm not opposed to the King James Version. I think it's a, it's a marvel. It is a work of art. It has influenced the English language 
um, like nothing else before. However, there are still Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic texts that we have to consider as we construct a modern translation of the Bible. Now, I think the best translation of the Bible is the one that you read. And so if you read the King James, you read that King James. Go for it. Work hard to understand it. I would personally suggest that you take the King James in one hand and read something more modern in the other. That you read more than one Bible, that you read more than one translation. So much so that even, you know, as you think about this, um, you can actually get Bible software that you can compare in parallel. You can compare the ESV, the English Standard Version, one that I like. You can compare it with the Geneva Bible from 1599. You can compare it even with the Latin Vulgate. And you can see some of the differences and some of the translation decisions that people have made as they have produced the English translation of what was inspired by God and given to us. So where does authority come from? Authority comes from Scripture. Authority comes from understanding God's Word, and in understanding God's Word, applying it to who we are as people and to how we order society. Now, some people want to take that a little too far. But I think as we order the family, as we think about how to love one another as husbands and wives, that's just right there in the Bible. That's the kind of thing that we stand on the shoulders of giants and are privileged to read the Bible in English. It's to our detriment and to our shame when we don't. And so I hope this has been helpful for understanding a little bit about how we got to the King James Version and how when we see this, this masterwork of technology and philosophy coming together in history to create a great movement of people coming to Scripture and seeing for themselves who God is and what He requires of us. I think that God is also always on the move to speak into our hearts and lives, to teach us, to tell us what He wants us to know. And so let's look for that as we live our lives and as we uh, as we engage with the text of the Bible together. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I'm so thankful that you've come along. If you made it this far, like and subscribe. Take care.